It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show. Today, after our successful shallow dive into the waters of UWA, we are in fact taking a deep dive into the UWA. We're looking at UWA Christmas 1991. We're going for a bit of lucha. And to join me on this journey down Mexico way, like two characters at the end of a Sam Peckinpah movie who either make it to the border or get shot. It's John Dinsdale. How are you? Uh, thankfully, I haven't been shot. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're in the getaway. We aren't in... Um, uh, Alfredo, uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we thought we'd talk about the UWA. What did you know of the UWA before I showed you some UWA last week? Um, I'd read bits and pieces about it. We've both obviously read uh, Shining Wizard Design's J Crown trilogy of books. So we've encountered some of the wrestlers from these shows in those books, heard a bit about titles. It's, yeah. I knew the I knew of UWA. I knew of their history, legacy, and just yeah. Not really seen much of it because it's not widely available. No, but one man has made a crusade, and that man is Ray Lucier, who has uh, noted uh, historian and um, videographer of wrestling history. He's got several YouTube channels. He has a UWA YouTube channel. So I picked two consecutive weeks to see what UWA TV shows were like. They were kind of in an hour and a half format. So I thought normally we look at one show or two shows, it's like three to six hours to make it and to make it fair and give it representation. I picked two consecutive shows. They were from December 1991. Well, they were originally shot in November and then released in December 1991. So we got an idea of what the TV show was like. Normally we pick a pay-per-view, but there wasn't any big shows on there that I thought were representative, and maybe Roy will find some. Hopefully he does, because um, Roy's awesome. <laughs> um, and so we picked these two to see these two shows to see what they were like. Um, we will say before we start, if you're going to watch these shows, I did a little mini playlist, or I could put the entire UWA catalog and link to the entire channel to you on the um, on the YouTube um, on the tweets when we do it when we when the show goes out. I'll say that again. When the show goes out, I'll put all the YouTube links on there and you can have a look at UWA. Uh, the quality is from VHS, so there is no sound on the second show up until the last match. And on the first match, as John suggested, turn the volume way low because there's a lot of hiss and crackle and static. Because, um, you know, we're dealing with historic artifacts here and sometimes you have to get your proverbial digital hands dirty. Uh, and this is oh, a you case may, of that. You may crave a beer. After mm. watching too. If if you do have um, uh, an issue with alcohol, I would not watch these shows because uh, they do make beer look awesome. <laughs> like one of the adverts has like bottles where you can use the bottom of one bottle to open another bottle, and that is genius. And all the girls that drink that beer wear mini dresses that ride up. Apparently, um, it, it's quite a phenomenon. It's I don't know if that happens once you've drunk the beer. But it, it just, yeah, it's it, it's quite remarkable. Mexican wrestling adverts or adverts that are on Mexican TV in the 90s are just, 
because I watched them every Sunday. I watched CMLL and Triple uh, A uh, double bill every Sunday night, four PM to eight on Galavision every week. Um, and you know that was one of the core things about going back to Texas a few years ago. Is I got to watch I got to watch Triple A on Galavision on Saturday afternoon. It was ace. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like it just it, it, some of the stuff just down there. The way they sell things by gum. It's capitalism unbridled. Anyway, the UWA, the history of the UWA is quite long, actually. It was formed in 1975 when uh, the owner of Empress Mexicana de Lucha Libre, CMLL as it's known now, uh, Salvador Luteros Gonzalez, um, brought his son into promotion, grooming him to take over. And when he did take over, he did the things his dad did, um, which is unusual for wrestling promoters of, uh, of that era, shall we say. Um, and... There was a lot of stagnation in the CMLL roster, or the EMLL roster as it was. Anyway, around that time, there was no other big uh, companies in Mexico. There was lots of little independents, and if people felt their time had run out in CMLL, they would go off to the indies and then float back and forth. There was a lot of, like, do six months here, do six months there. But generally speaking, the old guard in CMLL were the old guard in CMLL, um, and they stayed at the top of the card. Um, as a result of that, uh, the trainer at the CMLL um, training facility, Ray Mendoza, and an investor in CMLL, Benjamin Mora Jr., uh, decided to form their own company. Um, and um, there was, you know, Flores had, um, sorry, jumping ahead of myself, um, they started this own company. A lot of the trainees of Mendoza were loyal to Mendoza, so went with Mendoza rather than staying in CMLL, which meant they had a fairly healthy young roster, which now enabled them to build a new, fresh, and interesting and exciting product. And CMLL got better because, obviously, A, competition makes you better anyway. It's been proven in wrestling history time and time again, and it freed up some of the card for the younger wrestlers to go up the card. So it was good for the Mexican wrestling business. And the company stayed in serious um, contention as one of the major promotions in North America for 20 years. And it wasn't really until the end of the promotion in 1995 where things started. The wheels started to fall off, shall we say. Um, they did their main shows um, at El Torrio, which was... Uh, and well, the actual full name of the title, and my Max my my Spanish is not great, was El Toro del Cuatro Caminos, which means the bull ring with four sides, which is very fitting, I think, for a wrestling promotion, uh, which was a massive 10,000 seat stadium uh, in Mexico City. Um, uh, not in Mexico City, in Nacoplan, I'll get it right. Um, and that became the the big um, venue for the company, and they did a lot of the uh, TV tip to TV matches there. They did their title matches there, their bat matches there. So you know that was where Pero Aguayo wrestled Marty Jones of all people in a hair versus hair match that went forty five minutes in nineteen seventy six, and it was Marty Jones's biggest payday in pro wrestling. Um, but it became kind of known as this big independent wrestling company that had quite a reputation as some of its stars like Dos Caras and El Kenak went up the card, were really big draws, 
were really talented athletic wrestlers and they started to have talent swap agreements specifically with the WWF and New Japan Pro Wrestling to the point that uh, I think it was um, Dos Karras challenged Hulk Hogan for the WWF World's Heavyweight Championship in 1985 in uh, Toreo. And... Um, as we saw last week, Fujinami and Antonio Inoki all went over to Mexico again <laughs> at that big stadium show uh, in uh, Toreo. Uh, Toreo. So, with that knowledge, we are kind of at the end of um, UWA's kind of existence as we're watching this. We've got four years left, but it's still a strong company and it's still doing good business. Um, and I've talked an awful long time now. <laughs> so let's get to the show. The show itself is presented by Alcatraz, Alfredo Ruiz, and Tala Mendez. Tala Mendez was the uh, interviewer. Interestingly, a female presenter at a wrestling show. That was unusual in 1991. Um, and then we opened the show um, with um, El Texano, Silver King, and Transformer going up against Fishman, the killer, Dr. Wagner Jr. What's your thoughts on this one, John? It's quite the, the match to just explode into, isn't it? There was a lot of name value on that car, like in that match. Yes, and as definitely. I earlier with the, the J-Crown drop, like some of those names will instantly pop out at you. Fishman, Dr. Wagner Jr., Texano. There's like, it's a who's who of like famous luchadors. And they're all just beating the shit out of each other in a technical manner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially like um, originally, uh, Texano and Silver King were their baby faces here, but they originally were heels in UWA. They were part of a faction called. I'm trying to remember it. Uh, I mean, let me just look up, look it up because it'll be quicker if I look it up rather than trying to remember it. But they were part of a, a faction that was trying to kind of establish um, the junior division in UWA. UWA is well known for its heavyweight division. They were the heavyweight company, and CLML was the lighter weights company. Um, but yeah, Texano and um, uh, Texano and Silver King were part of a group called Missioneros de la Muerte, the Missionaries of Death. <laughs> originally it was Texano Texano, El Signo and Negro Navarro were the originals an extensive period of time Silver King as well um, and there was somebody else too in that uh, it was later on this card El Vaquero, um Silver King to Juan Hel Texano El Vaquero. Um but yeah they were part of a faction and their big angle wasn't really an angle at all. They wrestled, uh, there was a six-man tag involving El Santo and in which El Santo had a heart attack, a uh, genuine shoot heart attack. Um, and I think Ray Fernandez was, was tagging with him and actually gave him CPR ringside and saved his life. So if you're a wrestling promoter, you're not going to take, you're not going to look that particular gift horse in the mouth, are you? So they were recast as fallen angels down, sent from, sent from hell to kill off El Santo, literally murder him. And, and they were the biggest deals in UWA for quite some time. 
Yeah, that that that's one way to make yourself a heel, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, we we nearly killed Mexico's top star in kayfabe. <laughs> we, Most we, recognizable we, luchador in wrestling nearly uh, died at our hands. <laughs> we have come to kill him, and it's like, yeah, that that's that's definitely a wrestling angle you can work with. Arguably the most famous wrestler of all time ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's how they kind of got started. And then as time went on, they became more popular. As things turn out, you know, being fallen angels of mass murder can be quite a popular gig if you frame it right. As a result of that, um, Silver King and Texano ended up being faces. And obviously, Dr. Wagner Jr., we're big fans of on this particular show, the killer who's just ace because he's just big and lumpy. <laughs> so this match was joined in the third fall. The Technicos were rallying as it's won all, as you probably imagine. Al Texano uh, has quite the surprising level of movement considering like the size. And it's kind of classic lucha tropes, really. It's, you know, uh, two referees and begging off heels and uh, driving baby faces. But surprisingly, the winner is the killer uh, who drops an elbow. I think it was on Fishman. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> an elbow drop? Clothesline and an elbow drop. That's all you needed in 1991. And jobs are good. Yeah, that's quite the, the sort of, I wouldn't say it's shocking, but it is when you think about, like, just what we used to as, like, finishes in this day and age. Yeah. Like, there was a massive argument on Twitter, like, last week about what is constituted as a non-finish, and everyone was sort of saying, well, no, anything can be a finisher if it's done right. Yeah. And this kind of exemplifies that, doesn't it? Because it just ends the match, you know, like, oh, shit, that's... That must be the yeah. world's deadliest elbow drop. That's it. You know, that's that's all you need. And then, you know, he was a big heavyweight in with middleweights, really. So you kind of expect it, don't you? Um, interestingly, no one really did trios matches before UWA. They kind of like started using trios matches to steal houses, like putting all the big names in the main event in a trios match. And it kind of filtered all the way down the card because you could get more people on the card if they're in trios matches and you can protect more people if they're in trios matches. So they just started doing trios matches and then CMLL followed suit. So if, you, if, you, if you're aggravated with the way Japanese companies book their cards, it's because of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the reason why, which is really intriguing to me. I was like, it just never occurred to them. Like, but prior to that, they were just tag matches and single matches. And then it was just like, why don't we just put three people on each side? And that's how you got Lucha Libre in its modern style. Shall we move on? Sorry. Sorry? Nobody will ever be able to decide whether that was a blessing or a curse. Yeah, Because obviously true. you can't go wrong with a good trios match, but then when trios matches are used as filler, it just gets rather annoying. It does, unfortunately. Next, there was an interview with Bobby Bonales. Um, Bobby Bonales was quite um, a famous luchador. He was an amateur wrestler, um, made the Olympic squad for Mexico, and then turned pro when he returned from the Olympics. And he invented one of the most famous maneuvers in lucha libre and in pro wrestling. Can you guess what maneuver he invented? 
Was this Bobby Banala? Yeah. Any know. ideas? You've quizzed, me on, you've quizzed me on this before, and I can't remember it. <laughs> to be fair, I didn't know this until today, so no, I haven't. Not this one. Any ideas? Oh. Um. No, I'm drawing no. a blank. Okay, he invented the Tope Suicida. Oh. Yeah. I'm honestly <laughs> surprised at that. Just yeah, because normally that's... when someone invents a move, they name it after themselves, but I guess the Bonzales dive doesn't really have that, that no, ring it to it, does it? Uh, and he invented it back in the 1960s. So for those of you who think, um, you know, aerial wrestling has ruined the business, you're wrong. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Uh, some wrestlers that we are quite familiar with. Kokina and Higonte Warrior went up against Dos Caras and Rike Vera. Kokina, for those of you who don't know, would end up being Yokozuna. Um, and you forget how great he was as a wrestler for his size when you watch this and you watch what Yokozuna had to do in WWE. This is just like night and day. Um, and he's a great heel and they're great monsters. Um, and it, the first ball ends with a Samoan drop from Kikina, as you'd expect, and the safest powerbomb you've ever seen in your life as Higonti Warrior gently puts Dos Caras down <laughs> for a pinfall. Because if you try and powerbomb somebody on a Mexican ring, you will not do their health much good, um, especially in this particular time period. They're a bit more bouncy these days, but back then, oof, no DDTs, no pile drivers, not many DDTs, definitely no pile drivers, and power bonds were questionable. So this one was very nicely released. I thought, good work on your part, sir. Uh, what did you think of this one, John? Or this, this yeah, first I really one, enjoyed it. It's pretty wild to look at how like mobile Yokozuna is there compared to what he became in WWE. Now, obviously, yeah, size differences will lead to that happening, but he's not a small guy here, and he's like belting people, and he's highly mobile. And I definitely cracked up when like the two were trying to fight each other, and the two faces in the match were like, oh, "Let's get him to fight." And then they were just like, nah, fuck you. <laughs> That's a standard feature thing. Spot. Yeah. It is a cool, always a cool spot. I also noticed this was like, um, I remember I was reading last week, Brian Hebner complaining about Bryce Remsburg's refereeing because he sells moves. And he thought he's ruining like the, the match. And I'm like, I know where Bryce gets it from. He watched a lot of, watched a lot of Lucha referees because they were selling for this match as well. You know, like Bryce yeah, tends to were- echo. Go, go ahead. No, after you. I was just going to go, yeah, they were flopping around all over the place, getting excited <laughs> in the match. Yeah, this is, it's like, I have no problem with it. It's just, it's Bryce. Bryce is ace. And I think it's just part of his character. You know, I, th- I think a lot of as well is obviously Brian comes from that um, WWE mentality where referees are meant to be seen and not heard. And I think that's kind of the true, the ADW referees, all of them are pretty kind of in your face referees. And I like it. I like to know that there's character behind the referees because then I trust them. I'm into more into them, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with getting emotive if like shit's going down. 
Exactly. You're watching someone get murdered by a wrestler and you have to count it. Like, sure, you're going to jump in because you're like, oh, fuck, this guy might die if I don't save him with a pinfall count. <laughs> <laughs> um, the match moves on to the second fall. It's kind of like a lot more rudo, technico, traditional dynamic of a Mexican wrestling match you'd expect. Um, obviously, um, the the technicos get the fall back. So it goes to a third fall. The pace picks up an awful lot. There's a lot more comedy spots and frustration, which is kind of cool. And the match ends in the DQ when Dos Caras has got um, Higonte um, Warrior in uh, a, um, a Cobra Twist. And Kikina just comes along and takes his mask off. And that's that, really. And that kind of like builds up the heat because the big heat is Kikina building up to the World Heavyweight Champion, UWA World Heavyweight Champion, Dos Caras, which is going to be like a main event down the line. So this was quite a good way of setting that up. That's a great way to have someone lose without really losing, because it's like, oh, I don't need to win. I've got your mask. Yeah, that's it. There's a, there's a Firic victory in there somewhere. Um, next up, we had an interview with Daniel Lassaviz, um, who was Bobby Bernal's son, who was a silver medalist in the Greco-Roman wrestling at 1984 Olympics. I thought that was a bit far to ask as a trivia question for you. <laughs> And next is an interview with Ray Mendoza in the dojo, uh, showing an awful lot of young luchadors training, they're like six and seven years old. They've got some corking bridges, though, in that video. And Mendoza is wearing his NW New Japan Pro Wrestling shirt, which will show you how deep the relationships were with everybody. Um, next up, they had a breakdown of special moves and including the history of them and their inventors, including the Gory Special by Gory Guerrero and the Romero Special from Robbie Romero. Was it Robbie Romero? can't remember Romero's first name. But the Romero special. Um, and then there was an interview with Miguel Perez and El Kanak, who would be wrestling each other for the UWA UWA Junior Heavyweight Championship. The, the, the Junior Heavyweight Championship? Or is it? it must have been the Heavyweight Championship. Um, I thought it was the Junior the Heavyweight Championship. Heavyweight championship. Heavyweight championship. It was the Light Heavyweight Championship. I'll make sure I can rewrite that down in my notes. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I'm just trying to remember the video description. I think it was the Light Heavyweight. I thought it's, I, I thought I copied and pasted this and it said heavyweight title. But let's talk about this match because this was really quite interesting. It started off as like a regular straight up wrestling match, like a proper pro wrestling match with lots of submissions and reversals. And you don't necessarily kind of think that's going to happen in 1991. There was a cross arm breaker and all sorts of stuff. What did you think of this? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed this. Like, at first, it was, as you said, it was quite a generic sort of lucha technical match. But then, all of a sudden, they were busting out more contemporary moves. The pace picked up. It was just, it got a hell of a lot more interesting. And then you remember, oh, yeah, that it's a main event. So, of course, it's going to be a bit more layered. And, yeah. It, it, it's, again, we're falling into the same pitfall of just, like, it's really good for what it does (laughs) at the time period. And you you can't really say much more about it because it's like there's only so many ways you can say it was really good. It's an enjoyable wrestling match in the main event of a TV show that's mildly interrupted by beer breaks (laughs) that you can just sit back and enjoy. It's properly decent TV wrestling. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you there. But this was for the UWA Heavyweight Championship. And it, and it makes sense because I know what happens next as I read ahead. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kenneth, um wins the title from Perez. 
Um, but in the, the whole match was like that. The second four, they kind of move on to more powers and strikes. But Connect uh, won the settle come forward with a press slam and a leg lariat, which was kind of like really advanced for 1991. Um, interestingly, Higonti Warrior and Silver King were the seconds for both of them. And then Connect won with, with a reverse, with a cradle reversal. But there's one, he, uh, Perez won the first four with a cradle. After Kinect had tried to rocket launch him off the top rope, he caught him and pulled him down for a cradle. All of these falls are wrestling holes. There's no like big power. Well, I mean, obviously, a press slam and a leg larry is a power move. But generally speaking, this is like straight up wrestling, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's oddly classical, despite <laughs> where it's considering, play. Considering the people involved, when you were you were you kind of like you kind of well, can it? Yeah, he's a straight wrestler. Uh, but you kind of get your head into um, Miguel Perez being a brawler because you know that's what he did in his big run in WWE as, as uh, um, with Savio Vega and those guys. He was kind of a brawler, but it was kind of limited to the people he was wrestling. <laughs> and also, I suppose it's Puerto Rico; they're all brawlers technically. Yeah, we're kind of like going into a stereotype there. But this was actually a pure kind of wrestling match, and it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, and even though Perez is a, a heel, he did shake Kanek's hand at the end of the match, which was foreshadowing for what happened in the main event of our next show. Uh, but this show ended with some nice fan art sent in by the fans and a little chat on the sofa between our three hosts. What did you think of the presenting style of this particular show? It's, it's quite odd, isn't it? Because if you look at how like wrestling shows are presented over here, it's it's purely action and promos and things like that. You don't really have hosts and interview set. Well, you have interview segments, but not like sit down interview segments in a studio before cutting back to the action. It felt more like a family variety show than it did like it did. Yeah, what we consider the modern style presentation for wrestling. It's Oddly, they've got the American ad break system down, though, because bloody hell. <laughs> I think I saw more beer adverts than I saw wrestlers. True, yeah. I think I think as well, it's like, it looked like um, a, a BBC programme from the 1980s, like Nationwide or Pebble Mill at one. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, a variety show. Like Pebble Mill at one was awesome because it was like a magazine show. It was basically what the one show is now. But done in a very staid BBC style manner from Birmingham every one every one o'clock, and he'd like you'd watch like it would be um, earwax developments and then Kajigugu playing their number one hit. <laughs> it was a bit weird, uh, but it felt like that. It certainly felt like Nationwide because I'm pretty sure they just borrowed the set. There's a lot of brown and beige on that set. It's a lovely late '80s confection. Uh, by the way, I did do some uh, research on, um, uh, where was it? Yeah, Alcatraz, who wears a mask, but wasn't actually a wrestler. He got famous by being pictured with wrestlers and then eventually just became a presenter on the show. I guess he was just hanging around long enough. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you a chop. That just reminds me of Mittens, the sort of deathmatch weapons expert who kind of rose to prominence by just being pictured at every sort of American deathmatch show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, then we'll move on. Our second show was from December the 8th. Um, again, it was El Terra Cuatro Caminos. Uh, it opened to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Lucha Libre in general. Obviously, it was CMLL that founded Lucha Libre um, back in the day, not, I think it was 1946, no, it wouldn't have been 75 years, then 1930s. It would have been um, CMLL that founded it, but obviously they were not going to shy away from using the excuse to have an anniversary of organised uh, Lucha. Um, and because obviously a lot of their big stars hadn't wrestled for CML at that point. Uh, there was a feature on the old Lucha films, specifically starring El Santo. Um, and the first match was Phantasma, Solar and Transformer going up against Babyface, Black Power and Rambo, which is the manliest names possible for the two tag team partners who are tagging with Babyface. Sorry, Babyface, not even Babyface, Babyface. Um, and it's kind of like your ideal lucha opening trios match lots of traditional begging off by the heels specifically by rambo and lots of high-paced action um it was fun what did you think of this one yeah it's a nice opening contest with some very very colorful costumes like it's nice to see that even in the 90s the like as far as the 90s the tradition of being over the top colorful was still prevalent Considering the yeah. amount of sort of all the shows we watched where your entrance mattered more than your match. Here, the sort of attire matches almost as much as your moveset. It's quite yeah. impressive to see. Transformer looks amazing because he is like a Transformer. Or literally portraying a Transformer. He has a helmet and stuff. Um, it's a fast-paced opener. There, there is lots of overselling. <laughs> uh, the baby faces win the first fall. The second fall goes to the Rudos with a seated Cobra twist, which was quite nice. I like that. And the third fall uh, was much more back and forth. Transformer rolled up Rambo with a victory roll, which was lovely. I thought it was well executed. I don't get the standing up in Lucha to rock back to make the pinfall. That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Like, if you watch, he follows through on the victory roll and gets the point of standing up and then leans back and sits down. And it's just like, why don't you just sit down? Bling. And also... the supposed to show how overly momentous it is i suppose so. that he was that fast he had to pierce himself to get back into the hold well it doesn't really matter because that's referee's going to count slowly anyway you've got plenty of time the re- the the referee's cadence in mexico does concern me because it felt like he was waiting for a bus between one and two counts i'll tell you that much but yes also, this Rambo is not the Rambo that was in the CWA Rambo. He was a big um, um, opponent for Otto Vance in the 1990s. This is a completely different Rambo. There was lots of wrestling Rambos around at the time, and they all roughly wore the same outfit, as you can imagine. But this one's kind of like a welterweight Rambo, as opposed to the uh, Canadian Rambo who was wrestling in Austria at the same time. He was very much a heavyweight. Anywho, it's always, uh, it's always hilarious that like when there's a popular property, there's always like seventy different gimmick wrestlers. It's like how many <laughs> Freddies and Leatherfaces have there been? To be fair, with Freddy, there's only really been one which has been owned by the Gilbert family, like the the most famous one. So Tommy Gilbert did it in Memphis in the eighties as a babyface of all things. This nightmare that comes and murders teenagers in their sleep, babyface in Memphis. There you go. 
<laughs> I mean, technically, he wasn't made a pedophilic character until the 2009 reboot, so you could technically argue that Freddy was a face to a degree. I suppose, to a degree, to a degree. Um, yeah, and then obviously that he gave that off to uh, Doug Gilbert, uh, who uh, used it. it. Yeah, of course he can, because you know. I watched him a not? couple of months ago on an AIW show, Wrestling Black Ant. I think it was and they literally did the full-on knife glove slash across the gut like that's that's a spot i'm not sure i'd be willing to take no it's, eh. anywho let's just move on uh we went on to an interview with a female talent called persa or perla persa i'm not really sure i did find out when i was looking up because i couldn't find anything about her but perita morgan's daughter is called perla and she's called Perla Morgan, and she's a big star for AAA. Anyway, uh, Dr. Wagner, Fishman, and The Killer went up against Enrique Vera, Tinabales, and Tinabales Jr. Tinabales is second, who I can't find any information about. I did try, but he's the small furry creature. Um, I presume an alien of some description as Tinabales is from the darkness. That's what Tinabales means. Um, was thrown around by the Rudos, which is really not on. Let's be fair. That's, that's just not pleasant. Um, and which led to the hilarity of them losing the first ball and him taking his revenge. I'm assuming it's a him under there. Um, and then second fall uh, took a dark turn as Enrique Veras was bladed or was beaten up, to be honest with you. Um, and again, losses the fall to an elbow drop. Um, and then... Um, the Rudos kind of just like, it kind of all petered out as the Rudos just hammered them in the third fall. It was a bit of a job squad kind of deal at the end. But it was a bit different to compared to the fair that we'd seen on the previous card and a lot more kind of serious in the end. This was pretty violent and pretty mean, all <laughs> things considered. It was, yeah, very drastic torn shift and a sort of move away from the sort of family-friendly side we'd seen in previous matches. It still got pretty intense when it came to the wrestling, but there was nothing too nasty. And then all of a sudden this match comes along and reminds you, oh, no, there are some serious serious bad guys in this company that will ruin you. (laughs) (laughs) Or treat you like a volleyball. This is true, yeah. I mean, this is is the thing. It's like UWA made their reputation of having big-name guests. It's like Andre the Giant. There's, there's a famous match between Dos Caras and Andre the Giant. There's Dos Caras and Hulk Hogan. Um, obviously, the match we saw last week, Paraguay having a feud with Antonio Inoki and Abdul the Butcher. Uh, you know, you look at their their roster, and it's a lot of big international names. Even like people like the Can-Am Connection. There was an absolute blinding feud between the Can-Am Connection, as Doug Furness and Phil Laflon, uh, or Doug Furness and Don Crawford depending on which area of the Canon connection you're talking about, they they had with the Silver Kings that like filled that arena like weeks on end. Um, and every time they came back from a Japanese tour, they'd go to Mexico and tear the house down. Um, because, you know, that was that was really, you know, the, the kind of bread and butter of what UWO were about. But it's interesting seeing like all of these homegrown stars. I suppose Kikina is kind of a, a foreign star, but he wasn't really a star at that point. They're kind of making him a star at this point. Um, it's interesting how they're dealing with stuff in-house, if you will. Hmm. There's hmm. a lot of variety right. to be enjoyed. And Definitely. obviously they have quite 
the sort of stacked roster of their own. True. Then we move on. El Signo and Coquina. Uh, sorry, I missed a bit. There was actually an interview with El Hijo Dos Santo about his father and also Carlos Suarez, who was an actor in the El Santo Lucha Libre films of the 1960s and 70s, uh, which was quite cool to see that. Um, and then we move on to interviews for the main event. El Signo and Coquina. Then Dos Caras was interviewed as well as Dos Caras, El Canek, Villano 3. Go up against El Signo, Fatu, and Great Kakina. Obviously, yesterday or this morning, depending on that, Villano 4 had his mask versus mask match with Pento, Pentagon Jr., uh, which, if you fancy a bit of uh, Triple H on, we can have a look at next week's Triple show if you'd like to review yes. that show. We, we need I to think. watch it. The pictures, yes. <laughs> the pictures and the clips I've seen from Triple Mania look incredible, especially from Penta versus Villano. Like Definitely. holy shit! Yes, and we haven't we haven't done Triple Mania in quite some time, so we should definitely watch it. Anywho, back to this particular match back in history and previous versions of Alano. This was actually quite an important match and quite an important match in the history of UWA, which I'll explain at the end. Um, what did you think of this one? Yeah, again, it. It's an excellent main event. It it's got a lot of moving parts, a lot of great action, and again, it's like watching some of these sort of older Samoan superstars just tearing it up in Mexico. Like nothing had happened. Like nothing. It's so again, it's just great wrestling, and it it feels like a main event of a TV show. Like, I know I sound like a broken record, but I don't know. There's just, there's something satisfying about a match that fits its purpose. I'm not 100% sure on what historical context you've got for us, but I'm intrigued now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, this is the thing. This is where perhaps things tend to fall down. The actual match itself, we should explain what happens in the match. It's kind of like nice to actually just take about match content for a change because it's like, Normally, we, go, we can't really go into too much detail because you, the listener, will know what to expect. Um, but essentially, I kind of feel things out in the first fall. Uh, and there's a quick end to the first fall when Kokina just landed on Elkanek. He didn't really pin him, which just fell on him. Um, and then there's a perfectly timed DDT from Kanek to win the second fall. Uh, I think that was against... Um, um, huh. Who was it against? It was. It would. It would have been against. Um, uh, it was against Fatu, um, and then it, it also features body connect body slamming Kikina. Um, so it's one fall each as they go into the final fall, and it's all going along nicely. And Dos Caros gets a fall position on. Um, uh, I think it's yeah. He gets a fall position on Kikina, um, and. Villano goes in to help him, and then all of a sudden, Connect just kicks them both off and then starts throwing Karras about. And it's the start of a heel turn for El Kanek. Um, and El Kanek is at the time, as we saw earlier, the world heavyweight champion. Um, and he would go on to lose the title to Dos Karras in February of 1992, two months later, which started a chain of events as Kanek would get the title back in July of that year which would build to a main event uh, um, in January of 1993, 
when Vampiro, or Canadian Vampire Casanova, as he was known at the time, would become the top babyface for UWA. Unfortunately, he was nowhere near as popular as Alcanico or as Dos Caros. And in the effort to make a brand a great big new star, he was big in the Mexican culture, he was starring in soap operas. Um, it was the beginning of the end for the UWA, who just couldn't really make him a main eventer. And as a result of that, the company started to fade away. And when AAA kind of started up at the same time, there was not market for three major promotions in Mexico. So the UWA folded in 1995, which is a bit sad, really, because this was really good. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to enjoy here, and there's a bit of a unique presentation to it that sort of tries to involve everyone, from presenters to fan art. It's, it's a nice little sort of presentation for what genuinely feels like a, a weekend wrestling TV show or a weekday wrestling TV show. Yeah, that's it. And it's, it's just it's just nice. And the show rides out. This is what I like about it. Is it kind of like, instead of, because it's pre-taped, Instead of just like leaving on the main event, they have a chance to talk about the main event and set up what's happening next week. It reminds me a lot of Primetime Wrestling, the TV show from WWE in the 1980s and 90s, which did have that kind of feel to it. Bobby Heenan and um, Gorilla Monsoon would talk about the main event and what was going to happen the following week. So it felt more like a magazine show rather than just a bunch of wrestling, which often superstars and, and wrestling challenge just felt like a bunch of wrestling. Um, so it felt feels more thought out. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it feels like something of a more solid project product than just wrestling, 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 promo, wrestling, promo, wrestling, cliffhanger. <laughs> Interestingly, who was the first again as a guest? The UWA Championship was formed in 1977 in August. Guess who the main? Guess who was the first champion? I've read this. Oh, I wasn't ready for a memory test. <laughs> First champion. Oh. Was it Mendoza? No. It was not Ray Mendoza. It was Luthez. Who in, who in 1977 would have been in 61. There you go. So they, decided, <laughs> they decided, here's how we're going to make our, our title prestigious. We'll put it on a, an absolute version. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. He had a time limit draw with Mil Mascaros um, on the UWO's first show in 1976. Um, and yeah, that was, that was that. They made him the championship, made him the champion. Um, as the, I guess, winner on points. Winner, winner by decision. And that was the, that he was champion. He lost the belt to El Canic, um in the following year, almost just over a year later. 377 days as champion. And um, yeah, there you go. Which is like, you know, Lou was kind of traveling founding father at that particular point of professional wrestling promotions. He also spent a lot of time in the IWA, where Mil Mascaris was well known as well in that same time period which was a US organization that was a bit of an outlaw organization, to be honest. It was in the it was in Ohio region. I've got some videotapes of that. Um, but there you go. So that's our little visit to the UWA. We've been promising it for years, and we finally got around to it. And I think it was well worthwhile. What was your 
feelings about this particular presentation from that time period, John? Yeah, it's, as I said, it's, it's a nice way to present things. It was a bit less outlandish than the match we looked at last week. But <laughs> there's, some, there's some really decent wrestling, and there's clearly a lot of people on that show that were there because they wanted to be. Mm. You've got interviewers, presenters, everyone who knows their shit and is happy to talk about it. And as you said, there's there's a few sort of oddities that are quite pleasant to see as well, like a female presenter in the 90s. Yeah, definitely. Who'd have fucking thunk like, it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, there's lots, lots of stuff there. It, it's, it's, it's a bit genteel at times as well. It's like, I like the juxtaposition of the fact that the, the commentary team are just kind of laid back, chilled out, sat having a chat, where all this violence is going on. <laughs> That's nice. It's a nice kind of change. Um, but yeah, no, it's just intriguing, isn't it? It's, um, it's just, it's that bit different. You know, it's not like CMLL, which was still at that time period. I mean, me and Ben looked at those CMLL shows not long after me and you looked at their AAA shows and it's, it's not that different, but it's different enough to make it like, I could feel why fans wanted to pull for this promotion and watch this promotion over that promotion. Um, and I'm not saying I prefer it because I think they're both kind of much of a muchness, but I do see the differences and I do see why UWA, UWA is considered great. And I like the approach of like the idea of big stars as well, you know, because that's kind of like a dream match thing. It's pretty big influence what AEW are doing now, really. You know, more wrestling, more wrestling changes the more it stays the same. Right then, but I think we've said enough about UWA. It's time for you to go watch it. It's pretty damn good, and there's lots of it out there. We will put the links to the Ray Lucier's YouTube channel on there, um, I'll, along with so you can listen to our commentary and see what you think. Um, please um, go support Roy because he's awesome. He was at Wrestle uh, Triple Mania yesterday as well, um, uh, supporting the um, Villano family because he's friends with them because he knows all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right then, where can we find you on the internet, John? Find me at John Deathman on Twitter. That is the gateway to hell. It will lead you to my ramblings, my rantings, my writings. And yeah, follow me at Patreon under Deathmatch Digest. You can get twice weekly Deathmatch content looking at the wide world of Deathmatch wrestling. <laughs> the wide, wide world of sports. Uh, you can find me at Sheriff Lonestar on Twitter. You can find the show Trooping Show on Twitter. You can find us on um, Patreon. You can keep us free forever for everyone as well as John. John's not free, but you can keep him in John the Deathmatchy stuff if you want on his Patreon. You can just keep us open on our Patreon. Uh, you can find us on Facebook too. We'll be back next week. Sounds like we're looking at Triple Mania. I would guess that one Marcus Green might be interested in that match because of the uh, impact EAW crossoverness, which he does tend to like quite a lot. So I'm hopefully we can persuade Marcus to come join us because that's always a blast. So our three of us on the show, and we will speak to you next Monday. Take care. Bye. <laughs>